His deepest intentions for us are mercy and comfort. His heart for us is a heart full of mercy, full of comfort, full of grace for people like us. And so we respond to his goodness to us through giving of our offerings. We respond to that in praise and adoration of him. We respond to that in sharing this good news with others. He's just so good to us. We, we need to get used to that. We just need to have this settledness about us that we are just going to accept the fact that God is so good to us. And we just need to live there. And everything will be okay. We're going to pray a prayer about uh, what a father we have. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we joyfully affirm that you are the Father we've always longed for and needed. At best, our earthly fathers offer a mere taste of what it means to be your beloved children. But nobody can love us, care for us, and delight in us the way you do. Our hearts overflow with thanksgiving as we cry, Abba, Father. Thank you for adopting us into your eternal family, forgiving us and robing us in Jesus' righteousness. Thank you for freeing us from our slavery to sin and our orphan-like ways. Thank you for giving us the spirit of sonship, a secure place in your family and an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. What blessed and beloved children we are. And thank you for being the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Always present, always encouraging. Thank you for promising to complete the work you began in us and for only disciplining us in love. Never shaming, chiding, or withdrawing from us. So very amen we pray in Jesus merciful and mighty name. Imagine you get to speak to a room full of adopted kids. The building is packed. The room is packed. There are lots of families there, moms and dads and all these kids who have been adopted into these new families. 
So there's this excitement in the air at this adoption conference. There's anticipation. And you, as the keynote speaker, you begin your message this way. Does your new dad really love you? Are you proving that you were worth adopting by being good enough and trying really, really hard to earn your spot in the family? Do your new parents really love you? Wouldn't that be awful? That's terrible. What an awful thing to say to a room full of adopted children. And it would be very, very cruel. Question then why do we do this to Christians? Why do some pastors preach messages like that week after week after week? John Hicks tweeted something along these lines once, and it has stuck with me. And I've heard my fair share of sermons by pastors who do this. So many pastors try to get their people to doubt their own salvation, to doubt that they have been adopted into God's family. I mean, how awful, how mean, how cruel. Every week for some pastors, church just becomes a time to get people to doubt and to question whether they really are a child of God. How sad. So imagine going to an adoption conference where families that have adopted children show up to celebrate the joys of adoption. And you have a keynote speaker who, in his entire message, tries to get those children to doubt their adoption, to doubt that their parents really love them, and to convince them that they better try hard to earn their parents' love. For some pastors in some churches, this is the hallmark of their ministries. This is Sunday morning in many churches around the world. Well, guess what? We will not be that kind of church. As long as I am here, we will not be that kind of church. We are going to take our first name seriously. We're going to celebrate adoption every single week that we have been adopted into God's family because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Now, why in the world should we cause you to doubt that you have been adopted into God's forever family? That is wicked. And it does great harm to broken and bruised people. And even worse, it glorifies the devil. Those kinds of churches and pastors and sermons cause people to doubt God's goodness. And then it sets those people on a path where they are actually afraid to have good thoughts of God. They become paralyzed, always questioning, always examining their hearts to see if they are in the faith. To see if God really loves them. How sad. Maybe you've been set on that path by some mean preacher. And if so, I am so sorry that it, that, that has happened to you. I want to help you today. Don't be afraid to have good thoughts of God. 
Let me ask you, are you afraid to have good thoughts of God? Do you want to believe that he really is kind and gentle, but you're just too afraid to think of him this way? As if you were treading somewhere you should not tread by thinking of him this way? You don't have to be afraid to have good thoughts of God. Let your mind linger on his goodness. Run wild in thinking about how good your God is, your Father is. And then explode in praise and adoration of your heavenly Father. As your pastor, I want to help you make much of being God's child and having God as your father. And I also want to recommend a book to you that just came out. It's by Dane Ortland, and it will help you understand God's heart better. I mean, wow. This book, y'all, you need to get it. If you want to know how Jesus feels about you, how his heart feels about you right now, how his heart even feels about you in the middle of your failures and in the middle of your sin, you need to get this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Do your own heart a favor and get this book. If I was a big spender and I had the cash, I would buy one for every single person in this church. Seriously, you need to get this book. It just came out, and if you get it and read it, your heart will write you thank you notes for years to come. So on behalf of your heart, get this book. In this book, Dane Ortland lays out what the heart of Jesus is like. How does Jesus feel about you right now, in this moment, on Sunday morning? What is his heart toward you? Toward you who struggled all week and maybe caved to lust or fear or pride or worry. How does Jesus feel about you right now? This book will help answer that. It's a book not so much about what Jesus has already done for us, but how he actually feels in his gut toward us right now. So in this book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, Dane Ortland says this about God. I'm seeking to help us leave behind our natural fallen intuitions that God is distant and parsimonious, stingy, I had to look that word up. Stingy. That God is distant and stingy. And to step into the liberating realization that he is gentle and lowly in heart. A common perception among Christians today is that, yes, to some degree anyway, the Father is less inclined to love and forgive than the Son. This is not what the Bible teaches. Beyond what we are conscious of at any given moment, The Father's tender care envelops us with pursuing gentleness, sweetly governing every last detail of our lives. Through and underneath and fueling all that washes into our lives, great and small, is the heart of a father. You really need to get this book. And to whet your appetite for this book, we're going to be sending out some excerpts from this book over the next few weeks. 
If you don't know, we send out a daily email devotional Monday through Friday called The Vine. And we do this because we want you to actually remember and think about what you heard on Sunday morning. So we send out devotionals that are related to the sermon to remind you what you heard in the sermon. And we also send out a devotional that further unpacks our New City Catechism question of the week. And then we also include our prayer of confession and celebration because we want to disciple you in how to pray, how to pray gospel-centered prayers. And we do this because we want to give you some take-home theology that will remind you of the great truths that you heard on Sunday morning. So you kind of get that echo all week long. We want you to experience Sunday morning all week long. And so if you don't receive this email, then contact the church office and we'll add you to the list. Do that today because beginning tomorrow in the Vine and for the next three weeks, we're going to be sending out excerpts from Dane Ortland's new book. And I hope they whet your appetite for more. I hope they help you have good thoughts of God. And so get this book. You won't regret it, I promise. It really is that good. But now let's look at the best book. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This book is the best book because this book is the original. It's God's word. It's the book that tells us what God is like so that we can have good thoughts about him. And we can trust every single word in this book. We can trust every syllable in it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We're going to take our time here with this verse and actually spend several weeks here marinating on who God is. So these will kind of be more topical sermons in nature. Today, we're just going to slow down and spend some time thinking about God the Father. We'll highlight His mercy and comfort, but we'll see those more in the coming weeks. But today, we want to marinate in the truth that we are adopted children and that we belong to the family of God and that we have God as father. And notice how Paul starts out here. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul just starts exploding in worship and praise and adoration of who God is right here at the beginning in verse 3. So this is like his letter has officially started. He kind of had the introduction there in verses 1 and 2. This is the real beginning, the body of his letter starting. And what does he do? He explodes in adoration of God. Notice too that Paul mentions the Father two times. So he just explodes in praise and worship and adoration of God the Father right at the beginning of his letter. He has these good thoughts of who God is. He is a merciful, comforting Father. God doesn't give us what we deserve. And that's why Paul sings out here. It's mercy. Mercy is we don't get what we deserve. I mean, wow, think about it. Let that sink in. We do not get what we rightly deserve. 
And if there's any kids listening, you should have received an email from Paula and Michelle this week that you could print out. And this is what's on your papers if you have them before you, or you can color them later. It's all about God's mercy, how he doesn't give us what we deserve. But understand this, praising and worshiping and adoring God has a way of recalibrating your heart so that you can have good thoughts of God. When we explode in adoration of who God is and what he has done for us, that then enables us to begin having good thoughts of God. And so if you are tempted to doubt God and you are tempted to have what I would call silly thoughts of Him, maybe even dark thoughts of Him and what He is like, if you're tempted to that, then blessing Him like Paul does here will enable you to begin thinking good thoughts of Him. And that's all that Paul is doing here. Blessed be the God and Father. He's blessing the Lord. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless the Lord? I mean, we should know because we sing songs about this, right? Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. What does that even mean? We sing it. We should know what it means. The Greek word that Paul uses here is drawing on the Hebrew word for bless. We saw this in number six. The priest would pray that Yahweh would bless Israel. That simply means that they were praying that the Lord would take note of that person's needs and then meet them. So to bless the Lord is shorthand for, I mean, to have the Lord bless us is shorthand for Jesus. Please look over their situation, identify their needs, and respond by meeting them. That's what it means to say the Lord bless you. To have the priest pray over them was take note of their needs, Lord, And then meet them. So when the Lord blesses us, what he does is he looks over our life, who we are, what we are, people who are unworthy, people who are in desperate need, people who are in difficult situations, you fill in the blanks, and then God responds in mercy and grace with timely help, strength, and provision. That's what it means to have the Lord bless you or to bless someone. That's what it means to say to someone, the Lord bless you. But what in the world does it mean for us to bless the Lord? To say, like Paul does here, blessed be the God and Father. When we bless the Lord, we don't review his needs because he has none. We review and remember his perfections, his attributes, who he is, and then we respond by giving him the worship that is due to him. When we bless the Lord, we think good, accurate thoughts about who he is and what he is like, his glory, his attributes, his love, his grace, his mercy, his providence, his tender care, all of that. We review all of that, and then we respond point by point in wonder and love, praise, adoration, and awe. That's worship. That's what it means to bless the Lord. 
And that's what Paul is doing here. He's thinking good thoughts about God, and he's just piling them up in the first couple of verses. Grace, peace, mercy, and comfort. And then he responds in worship by saying, blessed be the God and Father. Notice that Paul does not say this. Blessed be the God and Father who sometimes loves us, but is often frustrated by his children because they drive him crazy. Paul doesn't say that. Paul gushes over God because he knows who God is. He's not afraid to tell the Corinthians about who their heavenly Father is. He's not afraid to begin his letter stressing grace and peace and mercy and comfort. And this church really needed to hear those truths about God because they had some serious sin issues in their church body. So he begins not by scolding them, he begins by painting a picture of a merciful, gracious God. Some pastors are not that way. Some pastors want to chide and whip people into shape. Some pastors fear stressing God's goodness because they fear that the church will then be enabled to sin. They fear that if they start preaching about God's free, unmerited grace to people who don't deserve it, then the church will suddenly wake up and say, hey, we're at liberty to sin now. They fear that preaching the free, undiluted grace of God will help and encourage people to sin. Listen, you do not need help sinning. You don't need a pastor to give you the liberty and the freedom to sin because you're already good at it. You don't need encouragement to sin. You're pretty good at it on your own, and so am I. You don't need a sermon about God's over-the-top grace to encourage you to sin. You don't need any help at all. You don't need me telling you how gracious and merciful God is in order to help you sin because you're doing just fine on your own, and so am I. These good thoughts about God in verses 2 through 4, contrary to what some people believe, they will actually keep the Corinthians from sinning, and us too. And that's why Paul begins his letter, blessing the Father of mercies. Paul knows that what Martin Luther said is true. We may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. When you peek into the very heart of God, which its deepest intention for you is love and mercy and comfort and grace, when you peek into the very heart of God, it does not make you want to sin against him. It makes your heart warm a glow with thankfulness. That's what Paul is doing here. His heart is warmed and he is a glow with thankfulness. So this blessed be the God and Father is in response to who God is, a God of mercy and comfort, a God of grace and peace, a God who doesn't give people what they deserve, a God who stoops down to comfort weary broken, bruised sinners, a God who gives grace and peace to bad people. But maybe you don't view God this way. 
as a father of mercies and comfort. So let me ask you, how do you view God the Father? You think that he's cranky and always irritated by your constant failures? Sadly, many Christians do. I think the Corinthian church was having dark thoughts about God. It's why, number one, Paul speaks of God the Father at the very beginning of his letter. And number two, it's why later in chapter 7, verse 1, he will call them beloved. The Greek word in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 for beloved, and you see it all over the New Testament, it refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. So you, Christian, because you're in union with Christ, you are God's beloved child. That means that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for his one and only son, Jesus, he now has for you just as if you were his only child. Wow. God loves each of us as if we were his only child. Let's personalize it. He loves you. As if you, with all your failures and all your shortcomings and all your struggles, he loves you as if you were the only child that he ever had. And because you are in union with his son, Christian, God doles out his love and his affection and devotion on you right now as if you were an only child. I mean, this is absolutely astonishing. It's the heart of union with Christ. So can you imagine being the only child of God? Can you imagine how much love and affection and devotion God would dole out on you if you were his one and only child that he had? That's what the word beloved means. And so it's true of you, Christian. He does love you as if you were his only child. And if you are loved as if you were God's only child... It's all because he had mercy on you, because he doesn't give you what you deserve, because he's the father of mercies. Is that how you view God? Is that what you think about when you think of your heavenly father? Puritan John Owen said that believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye or imagine or think of God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. And they think here and they do well. It is exceedingly grievous to the Spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves. For eminently the Father himself loves you. Resolve of that, that you may hold communion with him in it and be no more troubled about it. Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing of it. Here's what Owen is saying. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We break his heart, if you will, when we doubt his love. We grieve the Spirit when we slander him by not having good thoughts of him. So let me ask you this morning, how do you view God? Do you think of him as angry, full of wrath toward you? Do you see him as full of hesitation toward you? How do you think about him in the middle of your sin? Do you think he's hesitant to be with you and be around you? 
distant at best, furious at worst? Do you feel that God the Father is reluctant to show tenderness towards you? If you do, and I'll say this as kindly as I can, you're dead wrong, okay? 2 Corinthians 1.3 is in the Bible, and the whole reason it's included in the Bible is because God knew that His people, His children, you, me, would struggle to believe this incredible truth about Him. And so He added this verse just for you because He loves you. God added verse 3 in the Bible because he wanted you to know just what he is like, just what his very heart is like. So Christian, don't be afraid to have good thoughts of God. Your heavenly Father loves you. As Jesus himself said in John 16, 27, the Father himself loves you. That frees you to think good thoughts of God. It reminds you that there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. So understand this grace. God is not a wishy-washy personality. The God of the Bible is not, does not have a wishy-washy personality. He's not fickle. Our Heavenly Father is not an out-of-control Father who just flies off the handle. So please erase that silly notion from your brain. God tells us very clearly right here what He is like. Will you believe it today? Will you take him at his word and just receive it? You don't have to do anything. Just will you believe it? You don't have to get your ducks in a row. You don't have to make sure you repent enough. Will you just believe it here right now at 9.52 in the morning? Will you believe it? Will you take him at his word? There is no reason whatsoever to doubt it. You can believe this book wholeheartedly today. You have zero reason to distrust what God is saying about himself right here. He is the father of mercies and he is the God of all comfort and your sin and your failures and your lack of commitment does not change this verse at all. It does not change his essence at all. I mean, think about that. Your sin and your failures and your lack of commitment does not change verse 3 at all. It doesn't change his essence at all. And how silly of us to think this way, right? How silly of us to think that somehow our behavior changes the very nature of the Trinitarian God that we love and serve. As if our sin could actually alter the very essence and the very character and nature of God. As if our sins have that kind of power. That's actually blasphemy. That actually grieves God's heart. John Owen also said that the greatest sorrow and burden that we could ever lay on our Heavenly Father is when we doubt His love for us. He said, above all things, the Father loves you. Have fellowship with the Father in His love. Have no fears or doubts about His love for you. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. 
greatest sorrow that can break God's heart, if you will, the greatest unkindness that we can do to him is to not believe that he loves us. The greatest unkindness is not to sin. We tend to think that way. The greatest unkindness, according to Owen, that we can do to God is to not believe that he really loves us. That grieves him. But you know what delights his heart? Do you know what brings a smile to God's face when his children are bold and they say, okay, Father, I'm going to take you at your word. I will believe with reckless abandon what you say. I will believe that you are who you say you are. You're the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And my sorry self can't change that at all. How silly of me to think that my sin could change your essence, Father. Silly me. That pleases God. That brings a smile to your heavenly Father's face. Just believing his word. By receiving his love and acceptance with the empty hands of faith. Empty hands of faith. Meaning you bring nothing to the table except your trust. And then you just rest in and you enjoy that love. To just as Owen said, have fellowship with the Father and his love. Let me ask you, is that how you view discipleship? Does being a disciple of Jesus conjure up images of just enjoying God and having fellowship with the Father in his love? Or does discipleship conjure up images of working hard to earn his love, always being on the performance treadmill where you have to try your hardest to get better and better so that he will receive you? One of those will set you free and one of those will drain the very life out of you and make you extremely miserable. The Christian life then, the life of a disciple looks like this. Slowly learning by trial and error, by falling down and getting back up again a million times, Slowly learning and believing in our gut gut, that, number one, the Bible is true, God's word is true. Number two, that God the Father really is as good as he says he is. And then number three, to not complicate this. I mean, how often do we fail at number three? We We just complicate this stuff. We complicate our lives. We complicate our fellowship, not our union. We not our, we complement, uh, complicate our, uh, communion with God, not our union. We complicate our fellowship when we just don't take God at his word. So what miseries we bring into our lives, what non-gospel silly thoughts we let enter into our hearts and minds when we just don't simply believe. Do you see that this is who your God is Christian right here. Verse 3 is God just pulling back the curtains on his heart and saying, hey, take a peek. This is who I really am for reals. Verse 3 is who God the Father is and what he is like every single time you sin and every single time you are afraid to have good thoughts of him and every single time you avoid him because of your sin. 
is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort for your sorry, sinful, silly self. For reals. And you have no reason to doubt or be skeptical or leery. Listen, when we come to our Heavenly Father for mercy and comfort, we are not asking Him to change. We're not asking Him to be somebody that He isn't. We're not saying, would you please be that kind guy like you did that one time? Because I know that's not what you really like, so just for once, would you be nice to me? We're not coming to Him and saying, we need you to change in order to deal with us. This is who God is. We're not forcing him to do something that he doesn't want to do. It's not like God's arm is behind his back and he's like, okay, uncle, uncle, I'll be merciful. I'll comfort you. I'll forgive you. He longs for us to see him as he is, a God of mercy and comfort. And this is what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. And it's what I want for you, Grace, for the Spirit to convince you this morning so that you really feel it in your gut that your Father loves you and delights in you. That He is well pleased with you. That He has thoughts of tenderness and kindness towards you. If you leave here today, leave this live stream today with an overwhelming sense of God's love for you in Christ, then the Spirit has done His job. He has shown you the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. But it takes a lifetime of learning, doesn't it? And that's why I talk about it all the time. I think it's the hallmark of my ministry, sermon after sermon after sermon, slowly believing, as Dane Ortland says in his new book, that I will tell you once again that you desperately need to purchase today because you want to be a good friend to your own heart, don't you? So buy this book for your own heart, and your own heart will write you thank you notes for the rest of your life. So when the service is over, go to Amazon or somewhere and buy this book. Here's what Dane Ortland says about slowly learning these truths over a lifetime of discipleship. He says the Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who He is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Let's not fall into the devil's trap. Let's not please him. Let's not think the thoughts that he wants us to think. Let's not keep our hearts cool, cold and cool to our Father. The devil's greatest victory in our life is not our repeated sins and our repeated failures, but it's all the dark thoughts that we have of God that cause us to go to those places of sin. And cause us to repeat those sins. And then when we walk away from them, that keep us cold and distant to our Father because we think He won't have us. Let's not please the devil today. Let's reject the devil's whisper when he says, God's heart is no longer tender towards you because you just keep on sinning. Let's reject that and instead 
don't be afraid to have good thoughts of God. Let's quit having silly and dark thoughts of God. Let's trust him. Let's believe his word. Let's rest in our adoption. Let's praise and glorify and bless our God that he has adopted us into his family and we can never be so bad that we'll get kicked out of the family. Listen, you can't do anything to unchild yourself. You're in, Christian, forever. Let's close with a story about a woman who finally got it, who finally got the gospel after years and years of struggle and how she suddenly felt the love of her heavenly father after many years of fearing that he was disgusted with her. And that's what she thought. She thought, God is disgusted with me, disgusted with my repeated failures. May this story help you see the very heart of God for you this morning. His child, may it help you to quit having silly thoughts of God. Here's what she said. One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully pinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I had not realized the impact that that event and others like it had made on me. Not believing God concerning his delight in me and in the gracious nature of my relationship with him, this memory returned to me. As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years, I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. I told our counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said that I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on, he would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't understand fully, my counselor said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. 
It is the fact that my father delights even in rusty shirts that moves this most flinty heart of mine to really desire a life disciplined to seek him and find him and by his power at work in me to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. What a joy to know that our needs are a window to God, not an obstacle that makes him disgusted with us. Isn't that good? So is God. So is your father, Christian. He gave his one and only son for you on the cross to die for your sins. Look into his fatherly heart this morning and get a sense and feel how boundlessly he loves you and let it warm your heart and set it aglow with thankfulness and then let it cause you to burst forth singing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled that you would adopt the worst people into your family. That you would take bad people and welcome us at your table. It's amazing. It never gets old. Forgive us when it gets old, Father. Forgive us for saying, yeah, yeah, I've heard sermons about that. Oh, God, forgive us. Show us our sin. Show us our Savior. Thank you for welcoming us. Forgive us of our orphan-like ways where we act as if we are orphans all alone who have no father caring for us. Forgive us of that. And Lord, may the Spirit open our eyes to look into your heart and to get a sense and a feeling of how boundlessly you love us. And then let that warm our hearts to you. Not make them cold, but warm them so that we respond with thankfulness. Do all of this that your name is glorified and that your children rest in and enjoy you today. In Jesus' name, amen.